Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Kevin McCarthy's role in leadership is in a lot of trouble. Today, we have a show filled with the ups and downs of democracy. First, we're joined by The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper, who's going to discuss his new special, America Unfollows Democracy, and the things he saw attending MAGA rallies. Then we'll talk to Douglas Rushkoff, author of The Survival of the Richest, about what in the hell is going on with Elon Musk and Twitter. And trust me, you do not want to miss that because it's going to tell you a lot about our politics today. But first, to discuss last night's election, we have the author of Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency, NBC News Digital's John Allen. Welcome to Fast Politics. We are taping this minutes before you are listening to it. So it's very fast politics. I have brought on my friend, the very sleepless John Allen. Welcome, John Allen. Hey, Molly, John Fast. We're so giddy and punchy because none of us have slept very much. And Jesse is, I think, in a coma. Are you alive? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if you're hearing this, it means that Jesse was not in a coma. John Allen, good night for democracy. Bad night for Donald J. Trump. Discuss. (laughs) Certainly a bad night for Donald J. Trump. I mean, he put up a bunch of candidates. A lot of them lost particularly election deniers, people that he might have been able to put in place to help him uh, try to steal a future election. And then, you know, the sort of uh, the the cherry on top of the bad night for Donald Trump uh, Sunday mm-hmm. is Ron DeSantis, his main potential rival for the Republican presidential nomination, winning by like 20 points in Florida. <laughs> Ron DeSantis couldn't have looked stronger last night. It's possible Donald Trump could have looked weaker, but not much. Oh, and by the <laughs> way, the other piece of it, just a small sliver piece that gets less attention because it doesn't it doesn't say Trump next to it. Right. But Joe Biden walks out in better standing for 2024 than he did going into the night. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just reading Playbook this morning and it was like Joe Biden, the comeback kid. Now, there is a scenario where Joe Biden, this is just a punditry fail, right? Like the pundits and I and by pundits, I mean, you and I, too. Everybody gets together and is so, you know, has a lot of thoughts and feelings. And then the polling we know is complete hooey. Though one of my pollster friends wrote to me last night, it was like a lot of polls were right. I was like, oh, okay. Um, But I mean, the polls were wrong. Yeah. I mean, as a general matter, yes. <laughs> and certainly, like, the thing the thing that we do is just, like, aggregate the polls and then extrapolate the aggregation. Like, the further you get from actual polling, uh, the more likely you are to be off in, in some bad direction. You know, I, I obviously there were factors at play in the election last night that um, that either weren't picked up by the polling or were ignored by pollsters and the people who read pollsters, including people like you and me. Yeah, it's like one of the I I am waking up this morning very happy to be wrong. But a lot of people 
are waking up this morning very mad, which let's just have a moment to it in our sleeplessness. and uh, Let us have a moment to enjoy. For example, does Dr. Oz move back to New Jersey? I mean, you're assuming that he ever moved to Pennsylvania. <laughs> I mean, what do you think are the top lines like, here? Do I, like, do I think Oz is going to be a Pennsylvania resident six months from now? Like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I will be surprised if Oz is a Pennsylvania resident six months from now, six days from now, or six hours from now. <laughs> so here's a question for you. What are you, what are the things that you really saw? Like, I mean, I, I mean, the things that like I. That abortion. Struck- okay, great. Let's go. That's Explain. like abortion. Like we saw for months and months and months, all this polling that suggested that yes, abortion was among the issues that uh, the voters cared about a lot. and But but it was far behind uh, the economy, inflation, other things that are similar to those things, jobs. Um, and, and so I think what we saw last night, and this bears out from the exit polling, in fact, when I saw the exit polling the first time last night, I was like, wow, our exit polling might be off because it was so far at odds with what would have made sense for what the polling on everything else showed. And I think it, in fact, turned out that the polling on that issue was much more accurate and, uh, you know, in the exit polls and should have been like a good indication of where things were headed last night. That basically all that energy that we anticipated there being, um, you know, after it became clear the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe versus Wade, uh, that energy actually appeared on election day, even though for a while it wasn't in the headlines. So really, the Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision really did motivate voters. Yeah, I think the Supreme Court decision, you know, as much as anything else, killed the red wave, killed yeah. the traditional midterm advantage that the out-of-power party has. So, and, you know, I think to the extent that it continues to be uh, a right that is in jeopardy, you may see... Um, you know, similar outcomes. This is, and by the way, look, Republicans knew in a sort of abstract way that this was a problem for them um, and went ahead and pushed for it anyway. Like they thought it was the right thing to do, put conservative justices on the Supreme Court, have them overturn Roe versus Wade, and then deal with the consequences of that uh, when those consequences come. But I think, you know, throughout that process, I think at least smart Republican strategists knew that there was a risk that if they got the thing they wanted policy-wise, um, that it would end up being a political albatross. You know, what's funny is like I keep thinking about that moment when they overturned Dobbs and they talked to Trump and Trump was like, oh, you know, like he knew. I mean, and I, I don't want to give Trump any credit because he's an absolute abject moron. But speaking of Trump, I feel like this is the moment where Republicans start to distance themselves. <laughs> Stop, like, don't laugh at me. But I mean, no, you, but she's, you, may, he's, you, may, you may be right, but I, the reason I laugh at that is that I know, we say so that every month. What's the moment when Republicans distance themselves from Donald Trump? So you may actually be right. I mean, there, is, there may, could be an alternative. If Ron DeSantis, if Ron DeSantis decides that uh, he's going to run for president, there may be an alternative. And if Ron DeSantis says uh, Donald Trump did some terrible stuff as president or was like really bad at getting things done or um, whatever the set of things he might run against him on, uh, essentially running to his right, like, yes, the, the Republicans may like jump on to some other, some other guy. But for the moment, I would say always be a little bit wary of the, the idea that Republicans are going to distance themselves from Trump because about 35% of them love him and the rest of them will fall in line. Right, right. But they are but they are making their party smaller and smaller. You know, again, like this is the thing. They go to, you know, Republicans have a situation where they are stuck, which they did, the, you know, they held themselves hostage and now they continue to throw away the keys to the uh, uh, handcuffs. And I love to see it. Wait, um, Molly, I'm, I'm, that's like the most lovely mixed metaphor. What? They're holding themselves hostage. But, and oh, I throwing guess, away the keys yeah, to the handcuffs. I'm guess, like, it's all over. The, I love I, it. Listen, man, I got not That's much art. sleep. That is art. I think, like, the things that I was the most worried about as a, uh, you know, are these, like, um, the seats where the 
the sort of vote counter would be an election denialist, the people where Trump was putting them in office for his 2024 race. Those people have either all lost or about to lose. Can we go through those? Yeah, it's like a big sweep, right? Like, I mean, I think the ones that uh, that you would look at. Michigan, um, yeah, Tudor, J- Mich- Tudor Dixon, everyone's favorite actress, Tudor Dixon, loses. Um, you know, Kerry Lake's uh, having trouble in Arizona. Uh, some of the Secretary of States in, in these various states are having problems. And of course, the one interesting place uh, where, where the Republicans did very well, uh, in Georgia, you have... Governor Brian Kemp winning re-election, uh, which makes a lot of Democrats unhappy. But uh, Brian Kemp did stand up to to Donald Trump last time around, Trump. and yeah. Brad Raffensperger winning re-election after standing up to Trump. So you know, I mean, I think it was a bad night for an election deniers and a good night uh, for people who say that we should have free and fair elections and then respect <laughs> which, them. Which is honestly quite good. So let's talk about the places where Democrats really uh, got. Uh, Jesse wants us to talk about the places in which Democrats got the did not do well. Um, Florida is the most glaring. Like Florida is no longer a purple state. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, like one might even argue that there was a red wave. It just washed over Florida and didn't hit the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so Florida, I would say Vance. I mean, Ryan ran a really good campaign. I mean, it wasn't, I think, an unwinnable seat, but like Ryan did really show how Democrats can run in those states. Uh, if maybe. you're running to lose, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, Sherrod Brown can show you how to run in Ohio. Right, right? I would. I mean, yeah, that's right. So I, right. I don't think. I don't think Tim Ryan's as good of a candidate as Sherrod Sher- Brown is. Like, yeah. I mean, just flat out. Um, and, and the Democrats, uh, have of late been able to fall in love with candidates who can come kind of like within a few points statewide, um, in various states, Texas, Georgia, Ohio, um, instead of the ones that can win. And, you know, there are Democratic candidates that can win competitive states, Steve Fetterman, Tama John, you know, like, so I think. And um, e- even Ever- Ivers, I mean, in Wisconsin, he won again. He got reelected. You know, yeah, and at, I, that was supposed to be a tough race. Yeah, and that was good. I mean, I we did have the state party, uh, Democratic state party chair uh, from Wisconsin on the podcast, Ben Wickler, and um, they've worked really hard at their state party. I wonder how much like I know Florida's had some real problems with their state party, and Nevada has also had some state party problems. So I wonder if this is connected to, you know, I think this is an important point here. Yeah, I think it's um, it's absolutely true that uh, having a party organization is helpful to winning elections. I mean, <laughs> what, are elections, what are elections but getting people to vote? And if you have a, a disorganized party, it makes it a lot harder to do that. And if you have an organized party, it makes it easier to do that. Of course, you still have to have a good product to sell. Right. Sometimes maybe you sell Alpo and people buy it and eat it. Uh, but for the most part, if you're going to, um, you know, if you're going to win races, you need sort of both things to be true. You need a good product, a good candidate, and also uh, a good party organization or non-party organization that functions in that same way and, uh, and you know, connects a network for you so that you can get people out to the polls. I mean, that said, Val Demings was a great candidate and Charlie Chris was not. And uh, Charlie Chris lost by 20 points. <laughs> And Charlie Chris has lost now as an independent, a Republican, and a Democrat. Congratulations. Maybe it's time to retire. But the other thing that I want to, like, take a second to talk about is that there was, uh, towards the end of this punditry cycle before everyone was pro- proved wrong to varying degrees, uh, they, we did see a lot of junky GOP-leaning polls, which may have goosed the averages. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty simple uh, uh, strategy, right? Uh, If you put out a bunch of bogus polls or polls that lean in one direction, uh, you'll affect what the average is for the pollsters that do straight averages. And a lot of people use the real clear politics average of polls. Um, It's something I've long used. What you can see is potentially, you know, the very easy potential for manipulation of the average of polls by you know, bad faith actors. I would be reluctant to point to a, a specific case and say this was a bad faith poll. What I would say in general is that, you know, we saw that average point move 
toward the right. end in a bunch of these races and moved to places where it wasn't actually true. So interesting. All right. So let's just we're going to go through before we both go back to bed. The GOP gubernatorial candidates who are reflect uh, election deniers who lost. OK, you ready? These are the people who turned on democracy. Lee Zeldin, everyone's favorite little buddy in New York State, Dan Cox in Maryland, Darren Bailey in Illinois, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, Tudor Dixon in Michigan, and Tim Michaels in Wisconsin. And then we're still waiting on Kerry Lake in Arizona. He's presently losing and will probably lose. Bad night for election deniers. Good night for democracy. Uh, Absolutely a bad night for election deniers. I would say it's a good night for democracy anytime people are able to vote and there aren't huge fights over uh, over the truth. And what we didn't see a lot of is is people claiming that they had won when they lost. So yeah, that's good sure. for democracy. <laughs> uh, so still, so how does it end now, John Allen? Tell us the future. It still seems like McCarthy will eke out the speakership, right? I think we're way too early to tell uh, how oh. McCarthy does with the speakership. No, I but I mean, like, the Republicans will eke out winning yeah, I, I, Right. It seems very likely that the Republicans will have the House and maybe even have some pad um, in terms of their numbers. But it's not going to be a situation where they're, you know, they've got like a 25 or 30 seat majority. Right. Um, so, you know, this will be very difficult for Kevin McCarthy to... Uh, make himself speaker in the first place. And if he gets to be speaker, to actually manage that conference. It's, I love to see it. And there's going to be, a, you think there'll definitely be a leadership uh, kerfuffle at best. I think it'll be painful for Kevin McCarthy to get uh, the votes that he needs to become speaker. Not, I'm not saying he can't do it. I think it'll be painful. Uh, Mary, Mary, uh, we're going to leave it with this quote from Ben Collins, the monitor of the many maladies of the alt-right. This is true. Trump cannot fail in the Bannon universe. He can only be failed. I'm not even sure what that means. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. 
That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Jordan Klepper is a correspondent on The Daily Show and the host of America Unfollows Democracy. Welcome to Fast Politics, Jordan Klepper. Molly, thanks for having me. Oh my God, I just watched your special, which is... Oh, wait, tell us what the special is called. <laughs> Did it make you happy? Did it give you hope? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, the, what the fuck is happening out there? <laughs> it's the feel-good special of the year. It's, it's a weird time. Yeah, you have... People's brains are melting across the country, and luckily, the only thing we have to stop it is a referendum where we have to utilize those brains. So it's an interesting time, to say the least. <laughs> I feel like another title for your special could be Democracy Dies in Stupid. That's not bad. You should have been around a couple of weeks ago. We went with America Unfollows Democracy because, you know, we're trying to get the kids. We're trying to get them. <laughs> the youngs. We want to get all the young kids on their social medias. But I think you're you're not wrong. Uh, you could feel our democracy quickly slipping away. And if we had a little bit more engagement, a little better information, we might be in a better place. But wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Right. I don't know. There were so many destinations and so many people you interviewed and all of them seem to have the medical diagnosis as brainworms. My favorite were the poll watchers. Sure. I did not know that Mark Fincham, who is running for secretary of state and could very well win, was actually an Oath Keeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Fincham's got quite the backstory. I think that was part of what we wanted to jump into is those secretary of state races. It shows you how desperate things are when Comedy Central and comedians are covering secretary of state races during a <laughs> midterm election. It's This is... <laughs> All hands on deck, everyone. Um, I actually want to push into that a little bit because so you're a comedian, but you're covering what's actually happening in a way. And I actually was thinking about that when I was watching in a way that seems like almost a little more accurate than a sort of more straight news. Like straight news will come into that and be like, well, Mark Fincham is an oath keeper, but... Democrats want to, you know, give you free glasses. So basically they're the same. The question is, are you better suited to cover the state of American decay than a more traditional news program because you don't have to two sides what seems like the death of democracy? It feels like we're living in a farce. You see where comedians serve a a purpose. You understand where we're coming from. I've always said that this idea that there's any kind of unbiased information that we get is in and of itself a illusion. And so when people would come to The Daily Show, they would understand, like, I understand this is a comedy show. It has the bias of a comedy. Hopefully, the comedy bias is looking for BS, having your own point of view and bringing that to something. I think that allows us to go into the field. And yeah, it's we bring logic into the field. We, we, we try to counteract some of these narratives and try to get down to why these people believe certain things or just try to see what the, the word on the ground is. And more often than not, you're wasting time and you yourself are full of BS if you're both sidering some wild stuff like should we fight for democracy or not or should votes count or not or should we trust an election that has been adjudicated or not. And yeah, I think, <laughs> I think we don't waste time trying to put on this veil of an unbiased perspective, where in many cases, the bias is just coming through the facts of the realities that we're in. And so that gives us a good spot as a comedian, as a comedy show of approaching these things. I'm curious, it seems like this Dinesh D'Souza movie has had a huge influence on a lot of these people. Can you talk about that? For sure. You know, what, what I've found is we go out into the field and we try to sense what narratives people are holding on to. How do they push back against some 
some pretty incontrovertible evidence. Something like January 6th was one where you quickly saw there didn't have to be a cohesive narrative for people to push back against wanting to accept the reality of January 6th. People would say it was Antifa. Some people would say it didn't happen. Some people would say it was a good thing. There wasn't a coherent narrative, but you didn't need one. And then you fast forward to this election, and there isn't a good coherent narrative for people to bat down the fact that Donald Trump lost so many lawsuits, that there hasn't been really clear, incontrovertible evidence of election fraud. And then Dinesh D'Souza does this documentary, which is cleverly titled. It's got scary music. It's called 2000 (laughs) Mules. And you don't even have to watch it to be given a tool to push back against someone. And so it's not as if we even get into the details of what is claimed in Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Mules, which has been knocked down by many of folks, many including those inside the Trump administration. But it does give you a catchphrase. And so this last time out, I've had discussions with people about what happened this past election, and people didn't have great answers. Now they can easily just say 2,000 mules, and then you give them information. They're like, well, 2,000 mules. And so that's almost all you need. What is the catchphrase? What is the simple idea that we can boil down to something that's clean, that you can put in the face of uncomfortable information so I have to move on to something else? I just wait. Stop for one second. Are there 2,000 mules? Are there 2,000... Where does that even come from? I did not see the movie. The You got it. Download it, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want to give Dinesh D'Souza my money, but somehow. <laughs> I mean, I think the basic theory around it is there were 2,000 people, at least I believe is what he claims, driving around their voting districts, dumping piles and piles of votes in drop boxes. Amazing. He uses cell phone technology to place certain people (laughs) in different places, which has been pushed back upon because the cell phone technology is nowhere near as precise as what he claims. He has anecdotal evidence. He has grainy footage and sort of this narrative that we have cell phone technology. Again, a a, a loose technology, but it sounds fancy if you're watching quickly. (laughs) That puts certain people in locations of drop boxes. Hilariously, yeah. guess where drop boxes tend to be located? Around people. So you can see where there might be overlap in this conspiracy. But with a little bit of footage of people near drop boxes, it sows this doubt. Right. Now Gives people are wondering, okay, exactly. And when I go and I talk to the Oath Keepers in Arizona who are armed outside of ballot boxes, they reference this. They, they reference images of people carrying 50 to 100 ballots in their hands, and that's what they're on the lookout for. I used to go to CPAC all the time before they would like just come over and scream at me. I found it very valuable and super fascinating because what they're doing here is kind of outside of the purview of many of our like ideas about reality, which is what you see when you do these interviews. Sometimes they're like weirdly proud and sometimes they're mad at you. Do you find them mad at you? Do you have people screaming at you or no? (laughs) At rallies, I get my fair share of people who will scream at me. Partially because I'm from The Daily Show, but also just because I have a camera with me and the media are bad news. I went to CPAC and I had the opposite reaction, though. I had dozens of folks wanting to take selfies with me. I had young Republican candidates eager to do interviews, handing me their business cards, waiting in line. And I had super Trump fans trying to get selfies and pictures and talk to me, which sort of melted my brain because it was a mix of thirsty Republicans who don't care about ideology and are just want to talk about the game of politics. There were assistants to prominent Republicans who were just like, oh yeah, we love your videos around the office. And you're like, oh, interesting. And then there were people who are just the Trump fanboys who saw me as part of the MAGA universe. And even if they didn't necessarily like some of the things that I put on television, the fact that I was part of the narrative that they were so invested in was exciting to them. Do you wonder how much of this is about fame too? Like Trump got so famous because he was famous already, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they loved him. Like, do they sort of love you because you're famous, if that makes any sense? Yes, it it is at CPAC. It was all just a game. CPAC was nauseating because there was no discussion of governing. It was the show. And 
this is show business. The more, the deeper I go into it, I see the show business of it all. I only see the show business of it all. And the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene is walking through CPAC and she has 20 people behind her with cell phone footage trying to just get pictures of her because she's famous because she says the wildest things. And then I'm talking to moderate Republicans who can't get anybody to pay attention to them because they're not famous, because they don't say wild things that travel. And they're talking to me because I'm part of this narrative. I'm the bad guy. I'm the heel. I'm the villain. And therefore, they want a selfie with me there, too. And so it is just this big show. And and the deeper, farther I go into it, it's like, oh, this is the only way to compete in this is get your fame, get your brand, get it as high as you can, and then rile up the troops who want to turn on and watch the, the most exciting television show they can. It's funny because you are in a situation where there are people who really believe this stuff who are the people in this special, right? You interview them, they believe it, but the CPAC folks are are really just using them, right? Oh, yes. And CPAC had a mix of the super fans, the super fans who do believe it. But again, believing it is, it's less, it's not the issues. The Trump fans are just Trump fans. They're a fan of the fame, the brand, and they want it to be, it's, it's about win loss. They identify with Donald Trump and therefore they want him to win at all costs. That's what they're excited about. And then you see the second tier of people in the MAGA universe who do know better and see this and just see the only way to find success in that platform is to utilize this, to play it up. You know, I go out and I see Carrie Lake utilizing this. I see all of these major candidates utilizing this narrative. Okay, I'll, I'll use election denialism as a way to talk to people, to rile them up, to get them excited. And from that, I will find my own success. So you know this group pretty well. Where do you think they go now? They follow everything that Trump does. And so it's easy for them to jump on board and Trump's going to give them a destination in a week, it sounds like. Social media is where they're going to converse. And so whoever can make the most noise there they will follow. I don't see other candidates that have the same zhuzh as Donald Trump did if he extricates himself from the conversation. I went to a Doug Mastriano rally in Pennsylvania. Yes. <laughs> and the nine people who were there <laughs> seemed very jazzed. It was like, oh, here is MAGAism without Donald Trump. And it's sad. People are talking, talking the talk, but they're not showing up. Mastriano is not as compelling. And like you said, he's not as famous. He's not a big famous guy that they want to take a selfie with. And so even though the ideas are there, the energy isn't. So it's very curious. I think Trump can have little MAGAites that grow up underneath him. Uh, but I, I've definitely seen failures of that and failures of charisma that start to populate the Republican Party. So I would say like the, the sort of heirs to Trumpism are the Carrie Lakes, right? Mm -hmm. And the DeSantis's, though, I mean, again, there's this possibility that there's going to be a DeSantis-Trump face-off, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I talk to people out there, these rallies, people are showing up to see Donald Trump. Sometimes mm -hmm. they can't even name the other people who the rallies are for. Yes. Uh, that's some great video. That's, that. that's more Tudor often than Dixon, not. They really have, they seem to have no idea who the fuck Tudor Dixon is. No, even the, even the Trump fans, she's like, she was their third choice. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Trump is going to be there, so they show up. And then right. DeSantis' name pops up because he loves to make noise. He's becoming more famous in that world, and he's openly cruel. DeSanctimonious, as we call him now in the town. Yes, yes DeSanctimonious, as he now is. <laughs> So I think I think there are people like him who, if he runs against Trump, I don't think there's a space for him. But if Trump leaves an opening, he has the playbook. He has the actionable, cruel moves that people get excited about. And sadly, that is something that is out there that is is not talked enough about, is the cruelty and the excitement around the cruelty there is palpable and can be weaponized. And I see a couple of those big stars there figuring out how to do it. One of the things I think that we in the sane media industrial complex, whatever that means, have always sort of made a mistake with Trump is that there's all, a lot of us feel like there's a moment where Trump will be like, oh, this I can't deal with anymore. <laughs> That's never going to happen. Right. I mean, he just keeps going until he hits the, you know, uh, until he hits sort of someone who will stop him, which is no one. So <laughs> he is he is attempting to flush our democracy down the toilet because he was embarrassed he lost an election. He is willing right? to do that. It, yeah. it goes no farther than, than that comment, I'm embarrassed that I lost. Right. So what do I need to do? Well, burn it all down. 
So will he go away quietly? No, he'll, he'll never go away. If there's an ounce of embarrassment that the narrative around him is turning, he will do everything in his power to continue to push whatever lies make him a hero. And people will buy that. And he's already set up the blueprint for it all. And that's where like even these midterms and what's happening in the future, people are already don't believe the results. They haven't happened yet and people don't believe it. They don't believe it. People already don't believe what happened in 2024. <laughs> and I think the shit is in the pool. It's hard to get the shit back out of the pool. And I think as long as there's shit in the pool, that's the pool that Donald Trump feels most comfortable in. Oh, that's both disgusting <laughs> and also disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, I, I don't see a clean pool in the near future. And I do think, I, I, I don't see a world where he He's not a part of the conversation, if not attempting to make himself the central focus. What is the stuff you saw that you couldn't put in the show because you were like, oh, we can't put that in? Sadly, some of the stuff goes darker, stranger, and sadder. Yeah, I think we, we in Michigan, I ran into a woman who was openly anti-Semitic and talked about the Rothschilds and Only the banking system. Only one. <laughs> she was really forceful at it. Was, there's, there was a glimpse of her there, but you could tell there's there was there was a lot of hate that was out there. There was another man who went into depth about Nancy Pelosi and drinking the blood. I think there's also a little clip of him, but it went to a very dark place. <laughs> and sadly, Mike Lindell kept popping up at rallies trying to interrupt our interviews. And and frankly, we were like, Mike, we just don't have the time, man. I'm sorry. So there's sadly no Mike Lindell in this, and not without him trying. By the way. Mike Lindell, he has really worked hard to like mimic Trumpism, but he can't do it because he's just too uncharismatic. He is a celeb at these rallies. It is, he shows up early. There was, <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think he's technically invited to some of the inside <laughs> events. Right, I saw a video of him outdoors, right? It is, yes. He's, at two of the events we went to, he would show up literally seven hours before Trump spoke and he would speak on a ramshackle stage outdoors <laughs> for the people who are waiting. And, and there's part of me that's like, I, he might not technically be invited, but they're like, if you want to stand on the stage in between us playing YMCA by the village people for the hundredth time, you can get up there and say whatever you want and people will take selfies. And frankly, he travels. He gets in his big car and he drives to that stage and he likes to talk. Oh, Jesus Christ. Is the brick wall guy still there? The guy in the brick wall suit? Have you seen him or no? I haven't seen brick wall guy. No, sadly. <laughs> uh, I hope I, I hope he's all right. Uh, he, <laughs> although some of them are already up front. I mean, they get there sometimes days ahead of time. So there's a chance either he's no longer part of the movement or he's still part of the movement. He's way ahead of even where we have access to him. I have one last question, which is JFK Jr. guy. This is a guy who claims he's the reincarnation. No, he's he's actually JFK Jr. who faked his own death. This guy looks nothing like JFK. For one thing, he's several <laughs> inches shorter than JFK Jr. Is that guy still around? I saw him at CPAC. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he's handing out cards at CPAC. He's, it's all a show. It's all a show. Yeah, that's guy, my guy right there. <laughs> yeah. The guy who the internet randomly said is actually JFK Jr. was like, I can use this. And frankly, he did. He's he's using it. He's taking pictures with people who may or may not think he's JFK Jr., but he's he's part of the MAGA world. <laughs> Congratulations. It's so grim because it's like, it is hilarious and it's so stupid, but it actually is these people do really believe what is happening and they really are being ruined by it. You know what breaks my heart about that? And it's true. The JFK Jr. one specifically, because it's so absurd, but it, it's gaining momentum to the point that I was in Wisconsin a few months ago and I'm talking to the sweet old Midwestern ladies and I'm from the Midwest. And so I see these sweet old ladies, they look like relatives of mine. And we're talking about Roe v. Wade and out of nowhere, they bring up this JFK Jr. conspiracy and they're consumed by it. And I saw them as people who don't need to be consumed by this. They don't have to waste their time and their energy and their anger on this bonkers idea that the internet has shoved in their faces. But yet here we are, and now they're paranoid beyond belief about these absurdities, and it's pulling them, and it's being manipulated by other people who know how to manipulate them. Jesus. So hilarious, but also incredibly soul-crushingly sad and depressing. <laughs> That's comedy 2022, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Jordan. <laughs> Thanks for having me. 
Douglas Rushkoff is the author of Survival of the Richest. Welcome to Fast Politics, Doug Rushkoff. Hi. What a week. <laughs> what a week. So I feel like, is this the dystopian end times that I've read about before or now? Well, it, we're over the lip of the event horizon for sure. But this is the easy slopey part. This, the, the easy slope down. This is not, you know, we're not in the, the, the cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers haven't emerged yet. We're, we're still oh, good. <laughs> We're still good. What do you think about what we're seeing here with this Elon Musk buys Twitter go? To cut to the chase, I mean, the punchline of this for me is I feel like this is the third level of something that started with Charlie Sheen. Oh, great. Let's, <laughs> whatever that means, let's go. That sounds great. Well, remember when Charlie Sheen got in trouble or fired from Six and a Half Men or whatever he was on yeah. for something, and, and then he told people that he had AIDS, that he didn't tell people, whatever. Some, oh, whole Tiger thing Blood. Happened. Tiger right. Blood. Then he went tiger blood, right? So Charlie Sheen was, for my money, the first person who kind of jumped into the cultural standing wave created by Twitter. And he just embodied, he wrote it for everything it was worth, right? Winning, winning. And, and, and we saw what happens to someone when they jump into that standing wave is it kills them, right? <laughs> it finally destroys them. So he was the first test case. And then I feel like Donald Trump was the second. He goes, oh, yeah. I can do it. And he jumps in there and decides, look, Charlie Sheen, he just used the standing wave to maybe get laid and get some attention. I'm going to use it to become president. So he and goes, it yeah. And it worked. Right. It worked. Douglas, one thing real quick so I can get a little bit more clarity here. What is a standing wave? A standing wave is like when you see the water in the ocean. And there's a big wave coming at you. There's two things about that wave. There's the water in the wave, right? The molecules of water. But then there's like the wave itself, that thing, that dynamical system of, of energy that's just moving, right? So you can sort of jump in that wave and become part of that wave. So I look at culture as that. It's this big right. wave moving forward. And you've got guys like Bannon who can say, ah, I am the wizard moving these big waves around. And it's like, no, no, you're just riding these waves. Right. <laughs> like right, right, right. waves about to crash. So, but these folks, these almost like uh, uh, dominator masochists kind of jump into the wave to ride it for everything it's worth and try to maintain some uh, uh, control or coherence over it. But it's, I feel like, what Donald Trump was to Charlie Sheen, Elon Musk is to Trump. Okay, explain. He's like the next level of this. So he's using the same Trumpian trolling techniques on Twitter, but it's bigger. He's a bigger troll than Trump because he owns the platform itself. And I feel like he's showing that, yeah, yeah, you did this, Trump, but your politics, that was just kind of a, a subcategory, a little subset of the digital society that I own. You know, if, if Trump has a real competitor in the social attention landscape, it is not, you know, Hillary or Biden. It is Musk, right? And then Musk even does it. Like when the advertisers start start jumping ship, it's so Trumpian. He goes, oh, well, Twitter had this, it's this quote, Twitter had a massive drop in revenue, you know, because of activist groups pressuring <laughs> advertisers, <laughs> right. you know, even though nothing changed. And then he says, what does he say? I'm going to do thermonuclear name and shame on brands that drop out of Twitter. What is that? That is Trump. So when a politician says, I think Biden really won the election. Oh, you're going to get thermonuclear shame. So now what Musk is doing is taking that Trump technique of I'm going to use my swarm of Twitter people to ruin your career, ruin your political career, to, to, to bring you down. Now, Musk is using that same kind of, of power. And what it's showing, I think more than anything, there's been a drive among a lot of the 
big tech bros like Musk and Teal toward what they're calling techno-monarchism. You know, mm. it's like their sort of brand of fascism. They believe that, you know, the world should just be run by a really smart tech bro CEO. Yeah. And not, we don't need voting or anything, but get a good one like Teal or like Musk and they can just run things. And I think what we're getting is a preview of what that would actually yeah. look like. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is a very bad advertisement for the techno-solutionist monarchy running our society. God, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, everything you're saying makes total sense. I want to know what you, how you think Elon Twitter drama plays out. I mean, it seems like to me, from what I'm seeing as a person who's very online, is that he's just decompensating rapidly, right? Mm. But I could be wrong. I mean, again, do you think there's some, I mean, do you think this, you know, he's super leveraged, but is there some way that he wins at this? I mean, there's some way he wins at it. <laughs> I mean, but I think then everybody loses if that right. happens. I mean, right. the weird thing is we know that Elon Musk had time to think about what he wanted to do. He really right. had time. There were weeks and weeks leading up to this. And now we see that when he gets in the seat, he his decision-making process is, is imperious, Right. Like this, like this strange little child king. It's it's whimsical in that he improvises minute to minute like he's careening around in a game of, you know, deathmatch or something. He, he, he's got no strategy and seemingly no awareness of the kind of second or third order effects of any decision he makes. He's like, all right, I'm going to fire everybody. Then uh-oh, there's nobody. All right, hire them all back. It's like, yeah. yeah, when you fire people, the thing stops working. You gotta, it's like, and with his decisions, he's got no reluctance to externalize harm to other people, just to fire and hire at will. He's doing it in front of everybody, almost like performance art or reality television. And he's gathered this sort of group of, of sycophants, you know, who used to be somewhat respected tech investors who are now just these sort of sycophantic hangers on this entourage tweeting suggestions around him like the would-be first circle around the new cult leader. And he's so willing, it's so Trumpy, so willing just to destroy norms in order to yield this vision of a world of total equality, you know, where you use this kind of scorched earth tactic to wipe away every institutional governance or, or hesitation or roadblock to this, not even anarchy. It's something, it's something worse. And the only people I knew who used to talk about this, let's wipe away all regulations, all restrictions, were libertarians who happen to be starting with wealth. It's like, yeah, if right. you've got a billion dollars, <laughs> let's take away all the rules. I'm going to do just right, fine right, with nothing. Yeah, right. I'm sure you are. You know, and that he was so out of the gate with fake news showed that he really just wants attention. He's trying to get attention while demonstrating that this kind of rambunctious, chaotic, freeform, impulsive explosion will just accelerate us to this next phase of totally free, total self-expression, perfect self-sovereignty without restriction. The thing I've been like struck by is like, and maybe this is because they want us to be struck by this, but like how much it feels like ancient Greece. Mm. You know, like it a does. white guy ruling over, you know, the sort of lesser women and minority, you know, like we're sort of not, we're, uh, you know, not this sort of the, you know, they have their sort of inner circle and they, I mean, you don't see any women in this inner circle. It's just men. It's just tech guys. They're all white. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I do. And the odd thing is they keep talking about no censorship, no rules, no regulation, yet when you do that, at least in this landscape, you end up with just wealthy white tech bros. Now, why right. is that? It's because the landscape itself is tilted toward them, right? This is Twitter is the loving environment for trolls, right? It's going to favor the troll and the wealthy troll. And uh, it's, uh, it, it, I'm hoping, although, you know, I always overestimate people's awareness, but I was hoping that this raw Twitter thing, this, this Charlie Sheen-like public meltdown of the world's richest man would somehow 
make this more transparent, would make people go, oh, this doesn't work. I mean, the whole reason I wrote the last book I did, The Survival of the Richest Book, was I thought I'm going to make these tech bros look so silly in an almost Swiftian way that people are going to laugh at them and then discard it. Yet most people who interviewed me about the book were like, okay, so where should I put my bunker? And what? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I've heard people say, well, Elon thinks that he can scale it back, make it profitable and take it public next year. That, in my mind, seems completely improbable. Not just improbable, but it's the opposite of what is in theory philosophically behind what he's doing anyway. You know, what he's in theory, what he is trying to do is to build the open protocol system through which human civilization organizes itself in the next century. You know, if there is pretty ambitious. Yeah. But it it's that's what he's that's the thing. So you start with a social network and then you turn that into a, a PayPal, Venmo, banking, crypto, blockchain thing. You know, it's Twitter is Musk's way of trying to do meta. And you're right. The guy behind meta, Mark Zuckerberg, what does he model? He models himself after Augustus Caesar, right? right. So I guess Musk could do Caligula, you know, right. and then Bezos can go for good old Julius. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like a more likely scenario with Musk is that Tesla stock continues to go down. Lenders call in the debt and the bank owns Twitter in two years. Yeah, because the problem for him is Musk's crowd is different than Bannon's crowd. Right. You know, if Musk really had like the Trump world behind him, then there'd be enough. There'd be a different Tesla buying audience, right? right? And all the red state MAGA, right. you get MAGA Tesla or whatever. Right. It'd be a whole thing. But the MAGA people, they're actually, they're the people who are most afraid of these tech guys. You know, when you listen to Steve Bannon, they're afraid of the techno elite and the techno solutionists and Bill Gates putting nanobots in their vaccines. And they're, they look at all this as taking us away from, you know, good oil piston, whatever is that those horrible. So, I couldn't imagine any of my friends buying a Tesla at this point, no matter how good they are for the environment, even if they were, just because it's like, oh, you're going to do that. It's like, you know, it's kind of like buying a Ford right after he published Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It's like, it's not a good good moment for that brand. There are the kids, you know, the Gamergate kind of kids and the the kids are going to do meme stocks and some some of the crypto people who do think that Musk is realizing Jack Dorsey's vision when they talked about this thing called Blue Sky. Can you explain to us what Blue Sky is? Because there's been a lot of subjecture about it, but it doesn't seem like people really know. I mean, I don't think Blue Sky is is so real. Okay. (laughs) That seems like an important data point. It's kind of like Blue Sky is trying to imagine what if we did social networks the way that the original internet worked in this wonderful decentralized way with open standards. And it's not a, no monopolist can come and own the platform, you know, and then create all these choke points that prevent people from leaving. We're getting a big interoperable thing. So isn't that Mastodon? Yes. Okay. Right now that is Mastodon. And it is interesting. I feel like that things are bad enough in the monopoly internet for people to finally learn the, like the 20 minutes of stuff that you have to learn in order to use the internet properly. It's right, like right, that, right. That giant yeah. barrier to entry. What, right. I'm going to have to read how this works? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's my feeling is like I fucked around with Mastodon. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. And then I just like, you know, Adam Davidson, who, who used to write for The New Yorker and is very tech savvy, started a server. So I just went on that and it was pretty easy. Right. It actually is. Yeah. The thing is, it's easier than you think. All it really is, is it works like email, right? Right. You're on, you might be on Gmail. I might be on ProtonMail. He might be on AOL. But 
magically, I can send an email to you and, it, and AOL knows how to read the same protocol of email. That's all it is. You create certain standards so that you can have little servers all over the place. You belong to a server. You do all your social media functioning through that server. And if you want to leave that server, you move to another one, take all your data with you and all your friends and all your links and all your everything. And now you're there. And so there's no big one place. Everybody has their own little servers with their own little rules. And it it's you know, it's genuinely decentralized. What Musk would need to do if he wants to make money off Twitter, and I know he he knows this, is turn Twitter, <laughs> right, is turn it into an everything, is to look at the Chinese and you think about like WeChat. Right. So you do everything on there. You do your banking on there and your socializing and your credit score and your education and your LinkedIn qualifications, that everything's there. Your, your identity, which is on some blockchain, it's all right there. But why would you do it right there on a platform where in his first week of running it, the guy who runs the platform says, if you take your ads off this, I'm going to have all my followers do thermonuclear oh, shame yeah. on your company. It's like, uh-oh, that's worse than, I mean, it's worse than China at that point. Right. It's just like, oh my God. I mean, that's what I don't understand too, is like, what do you think the thinking there is that he's so powerful he doesn't need advertisers or that... I mean, because like if if we've le learned anything from the my pillow guy, it's that there's not enough of the sort of non advertisers, the non woke advertisers, so to speak. Well, he thinks he's got the power to dewokeify them. In other words, are you really willing to turn against me and Twitter? I don't think it's a bluff, but I don't think it works. I don't think he does have that power. I mean, because all he could do, I mean, yes, he could get, you know, maybe himself or Jason Calacanis and, you know, you know, a hundred thousand, 200,000, you know, Dogecoin people to then turn against Nike because right. they left Twitter. And it's right. like, oh, come on. This is not about free speech or anything else. It's about, do I want my ad? It's vengeance. Well, right. For him, it's vengeance. And for the companies leaving, it's not that they're against free speech. It's that, wait a minute, on the first day, you said that Nancy Pelosi's husband got hit in the head by a gay lover or something. And it's part of a really, do you really want to do that on your first day as CEO of the what you're trying to call the world's public square? Most truthful. Yeah. There's so much talk about algorithms and anxiety almost about algorithms like what do they do and how do they work and you know the the right is always like the algorithms are against us big tech is can you just explain a little bit about what Elon can do with the algorithm I mean can he really sort of shadow ban people is that a real thing and it's sort of a little bit of an algorithm explainer for us yeah algorithms simply choose what stories and ideas and tweets and things are put in front of you based on what you've done before. So a benevolent algorithm might just keep trying to bring you stuff that you're going to read and like and engage with. Very often, even if it just does that, what it brings you is going to get more and more salacious because we can't help but click on <laughs> worse right. and worse stuff. Right. But uh, an algorithm can also decide, oh, I'm going to amplify these kinds of messages to make you, I'm going to amplify news stories about crime to get you more scared of crime in the street. So you're more likely to vote, you know, Republican, which we found. It's those people who are afraid of crime and cities vote Republican. Or we're going to show you more of this or more of that. So you can tweak it where it gets the most interesting and the most dangerous, though, is when the folks who are tuning the algorithms are also getting deeply entrenched in what's called behavioral finance, where behavioral finance is sort of a psychological study of how do you get people to act against their own best interests. It's the kind of stuff that, you know, credit card companies figure out when they're giving you offers to try to get you to pick things that where you'll pay more interest and, 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 and get worse, or, worse or conditions. So when you have algorithms using behavioral finance techniques, basically, psychological ninja to get people to think differently. It's kind of sad. It's kind of dangerous. And I don't trust people at Facebook either, but the people at any for-profit private company looking to establish a monopoly, they're going to do first whatever they can to get you dependent on their 
on their platform. But if they are political, which is what Musk is basically saying he is, right? If they are political, you've got more control over this over the national psyche than the people who are producing reality television shows. You know, and that's really what we're looking at. We're looking at Musk as trying to establish himself as the true dictator. It's not that little reality star President Trump. It's right. the person who owns the platform. Capitalism. Right. Right. And can figure out where you spend your money. It's so interesting. This was so interesting. I ran too long. Jesse is mad at me. Please, please, please come back. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jong fast. Jesse Cannon. So Trump's doing this like mega media tour today. He's he's hitting all the networks. I'm shocked he's not cuddling Mike Lindell right now. Networks. I think we should use the word networks and quote. Yes, 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 that's true. Ragtag operations. All right. Trump told News Nation. You may have heard of News Nation, but you also may not, <laughs> I may have. not I may not have. This, which is like a sort of Trumpian fortune cookie about tonight's results. Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. If they lose, I should not be blamed at all. It's very Trumpy. And for that, Donald Trump, you continue to be our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.